The time is now. Volume 5, Episode 88, this is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, your host and the Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. It is February 1st, 2021. Do you know what today is? Happy anniversary, baby, got you on my mind. Happy anniversary, baby, got you on my Four years ago today, on February 1st, 2017, I started this podcast with the hope that I'd get a few more listeners than just my family members, and I am pleased to report and rather humbled and honored to say that we have definitely gotten our share of devoted listeners over the last four years to Employment Law Now. Thank you so much, as always, for listening, for sending in thoughts on uh, potential episode topics, and for also writing uh, some really great feedback uh, and comments about the podcast. As I do this same day every year, or at least since I started in 2017, uh, I have brought back my one very special guest to talk to you about all things politics and what it means for employers from an insider's perspective. And that's what I am doing again this year for our fourth anniversary special. Okay, well, I am bringing back again today, as I do on February 1st, every single year, my partner at Cozen, Howard Schweitzer. Howard is the CEO of Cozen O'Connor's Public Strategies. He has also served in high-level political and executive appointments in the Bush, Clinton, and Obama administrations. He has been a frequent guest, as you all know, over the course of 2020, talking about all kinds of things COVID-19 related. And you all probably, well, not probably, you all definitely know him as my very first guest four years ago today. On February 1st, 2017, I started this podcast and brought Howard on to bring some gravitas to the podcast (laughs) and talk about all things politics and You know, everyone's tired of me telling this story, but I grew up watching David Letterman and was always uh, so amazed that uh, he had Bill Murray as his number one guest on his very first show and brought Bill back every year for his anniversary specials. So as I've told everybody every year, uh, you, Howard, are my Bill Murray and so every February 1st, uh, I love to have Howard back on the podcast. Mike, tomorrow is Groundhog Day, so uh, it's, it's fitting. Bill Murray, Howard Schweitzer, it all fits together. It all fits together uh, perfectly. So uh, thank you so much for coming back as you do. Uh, Thanks every for having February me. First and, and, and even in between, as this has been a hell of a year, both for Whew. COVID, pandemic, and and politics, as we'll get into a little bit today. Um, Remind us about your practice here at Cozen and the kind of things you do in the political and public policy space. So, Mike, to remind your listeners, I run Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, which is the law firm's government affairs affiliate. We have practices in Washington, D.C., New York City and State, Virginia, Philadelphia, and Harrisburg, city of Chicago and state of Illinois. And what we do is help clients navigate through the maze of government. If they've got a regulatory issue or a procurement issue or a policy issue of some sort, we help them talk to government about their issue, legislative issues, and um, hopefully help them convey their perspective and, and get some results. Well, I'm surprised that you still have your voice working for you. The amount of talking you've uh, had to be doing, uh, if not since November, certainly, uh, you know, for the last year. Um, it's, it's been a lot, huh? 
it's been an insane year. And, um, you know, when, when COVID hit, I remember talking with one of our partners and he said, I, I don't know like what's going to happen with our business in the context of what's going on. And I was like, are you kidding me? This entire thing is going to revolve around government. So, and it has, and it's going it sadly, we're still in the middle of it and it's going to continue to, and the issue du jour is, is vaccines on the one hand and uh, the economic fallout on the other hand. And you and I have spoken about, about the, both of those issues over the course of the past year, but it's been an, an evolution of nonstop issues related to federal, state, and local government. And until we get the pandemic under control, that's going to continue. Yeah, and uh, it certainly keeps us busy and uh, makes things uh, interesting. Bef before I get a little into the weeds with some of the specifics that I wanted to ask you about today, uh, I do want to start right away with a couple of big picture takeaways First, what are your 30,000 foot high level thoughts on what we just went through from election day to inauguration day? Not pleasant. Um, <laughs> In two words or less. Not uh, democratic for one thing. And as you noted at the outset, I am a guy who has worked for both sides of the aisle. Um, I was a George W. Bush appointee and a Barack Obama appointee. So in in a town where you know there's polarization and and people pretty firmly on both sides i think of myself as somebody who can who can work with everybody i mean look it was an it was an ugly period and um i think there are a couple of ways to 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 look at it um in in retrospect and and one is you know to celebrate the fact that the system held um and, and I, I was never on the Trump train and I don't uh, hide that or make any apologies for it. I worked very frequently with his administration, but, you know, I, I think, I think it's um, a lot of the, the, the lack of truthful information that was out there was really bad and frankly led to what happened at the Capitol building on January 6th. That all said, that same, and it was horrible. That all said, that same night, Congress was back in the building certifying the election results. And despite all of the undemocratic, outside the norm kind of behavior, the system held. The, you know, I think John Roberts is one of the most consequential figures of the last four years, probably second to Donald Trump. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Exactly. And so... There's stuff to be unhappy about. There's stuff to to celebrate. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I hope that's where we are. Um, but that's how I that's how I see it. Well, so what is the future of the Republican Party, and have we seen the last of Donald Trump in national politics? I definitely don't think we've seen the last of Donald Trump in politics. I think we may have seen the last of Donald Trump in elected office, and it kind of depends what comes out um i think the future of the republican party is 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 in peril i think the future of the two-party system is in peril to some degree you know the um you got both the left and the right over promising and 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 telling their supporters that things that aren't possible or factual can happen and and that's what creates a lot of the dysfunction when most people are somewhere in the middle. Like I think most people, the picture that get paint that gets painted is that we're this like terribly divided country. But I think probably 90% of the country is within some limited bandwidth in the middle and they see things slightly differently but the extremes, there's just so much vitriol and, and, and so many lies on both sides of the aisle. I think it has the potential. And look, there's no moral equivalency between what happened on January 6th and the stuff on the left. But I think that it's dangerous to, 
tell your supporters things can happen that just flat out are not going to happen. You set yourself, you set the, the country up for, for terrible dysfunction. So does the tone of a president and his administration matter? Big time, big time. And look, there, like this country has issues separate and apart from Donald Trump. And there are things that he tapped into that I think needed to be tapped into. Um, he just took it too far. And, and the, the tone at the top in any organization matters, you know, in terms of what you and I do every day, Mike, it's you know, CEOs set the tone for their companies. The board sets the tone and, and the word, what they say matters. They, it matters from a morale perspective. It matters from an ethical perspective. It matters from a business priorities perspective. The tone at the top matters a ton. And so does uh, transparency and so does truth. And I guess those are, are kind of one and the same, but it matters a lot. You know, I think what Trump... Um, uh, kind of tapped into was that people felt like, obviously people felt like government wasn't working for them. Mm -hmm. And they felt like all the information coming out of government was kind of scripted. And I think as somebody who, who, who wrote a lot of those talking points, I think that's a legitimate criticism. And I think it's part of what like the distance between people here in Washington and people out in, in, in America is, is significant. And I think Trump's willingness to speak directly to the people, albeit by tweet, is like was like a real thing. And I think Biden has to has to figure out how to how to do that without overdoing it, how to do it without, and, and be truthful and communicative. And, and I think it's really important to maintaining the public trust. What's interesting as, as you're saying that, you know, to bring this back to, I guess, labor and employment, that's really always what people say about why we see unionization and why we see companies that didn't have unions start to have unions. You've used a couple of words. You said transparency. You said truthful and uh, communicative. When you have employees and name your company uh, who don't feel as if there's transparency from management, who don't feel as if their voices are being heard uh, or that they're able to affect change to benefit them, you see unions coming into the organization and, and you know, putting violence and, and those issues aside for the moment and thoughts on, on the how it's, it's come about, it's not really dissimilar to what we've seen with former President Trump in terms of almost a unionization of these groups around the country who, as you said, didn't necessarily feel as if government was communicating, that government was transparent, or that they had their voices heard. Yeah, and I think that's the case on both sides of the aisle. I think it's a great parallel you're drawing. And um, I think, I do think Biden if nothing else is experienced, I mean, he, you know, he, he's been a Senator, he's been vice president. Um, you know, he, he's an experienced guy and he, and, and his team is reflective of that. You know, his, his cabinet is largely Obama, you know, people who held senior roles in the Obama administration or, 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 or comparable roles. His treasury secretary, for example, Janet Yellen, obviously very experienced. She worked for Bill Clinton. She worked as the chairman of the, of the Fed. And, and I think he knows we're up against a, a, a very challenging moment and he's going to try to bring some of that experience to bear. He he just can't forget about the need to level with the American people and, and connect. You also said a few minutes ago, which was interesting when you were describing sort of where, 
the bulk of the country rests not necessarily on either right, left, extreme, but somewhere in the middle. I hate to oversimplify, and that's that's exactly what this is. But I've often had this conversation with people about whether we should or even could get rid of the two-party system altogether. I mean, does it matter, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, blue, red, again, at the expense of oversimplifying it, when we were in high school, when we were in middle school, and you were voting for your student government leaders, you know, you did it on an almost an issue by issue basis. Were they giving you, were they telling you they were going to have recess for four of the eight periods? Were they telling you that, you know, we were going to do this for our lunchroom and our cafeteria? And you saw who who you agreed with more on specific issues that you thought affected you as a student. Is it is it too oversimplifying to say that we can and should do that from a national standpoint? I mean, and you can laugh at I, me if you want. No, I no, I, I'm asking myself the very same questions, and and I think the party system is obviously very firmly entrenched, and I don't think it's a becomes a total free for all, but I think it may. This the place we find ourselves today. Parties don't last forever, and and there's an evolution here that probably needs to take place. We're gonna need to reckon with the fact that the, the extremes are controlling the direction of the country, and we're flipping back and forth, and it's unsettling. It's unsettling not just to the U S but it's unsettling to the entire world. And, and, and it's, it's not healthy. You know, Biden came in and issued a bazillion executive orders, taking down a lot of Trump's major policy initiatives. Okay. That's great. But if a Republican gets elected in four years, we'll probably, you know, we'll just, we can't just keep flipping back and forth. We have to actually like move the country forward. And that's the conversation I have all the time. I mean, our job as lawyers, as counselors, at least from the legal standpoint, is to advise companies, advise our clients on how to behave in the existing legal, political, economic climate. And it's hard to do that when the rules and the guidelines are seemingly changing every four or eight years. And and to your point, you have President Trump signing his executive orders and his administration and his administration's agencies uh, issuing what are perceived to be pro-employer rules, we're now seesawing and going back the other way. How do we guide our clients and how do companies know how to behave uh, going forward? Yeah. And I guess somewhat contrary to, to what I just said, I think one thing if you're one of our clients and you're looking at at DC and scratching your head and trying to figure out what to do, you really, you really have to don't buy the head fake is what I always say. I've probably said it before on your podcast. It's like you can't, most decisions are not made at the level of what the front page of the New York times says. Um, most decisions are in the weeds and they're nuanced and, and you can't assume that they're going to go one way or another um, just based on the kind of general direction of the country. So you really, you really have to scratch the surface of beyond the surface of, of things and look at your particular issue. And then you have to think about who else cares and who are the other influencers? Um, Where's the Hill where you're elected, your other elected representatives on issues and, and try to match up the direction of your enterprise with um, things and, and, and um, shoot for the long term. But I mean, it is hard. And I'm not going to say like on labor policy, obviously, there's been an, an ebb and a flow and, and, and there certainly will be. Um, you just you have to go you have to go deep, though. So before I get into a couple specific issues and, and get your take on uh, how employers can expect to be impacted, I just want to close the loop a little bit on current status of the political landscape. We now have a 50-50 tie, essentially, in the Senate in Washington, which means that the Democrats will now control Congress effectively and the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, 
first, what does this one party in power mean for the short term? And will that last, do you think, beyond the 2022 mid-year elections? I can't believe we're even talking about the next election. <laughs> well, effectively, so in both the House and the Senate, the majorities are razor thin. In the House, when all is said and done, there will probably be a nine-vote majority in the House. Um, there are people that are going into the Biden administration and some uh, races that are, there's one race that's yet to be decided, but let's assume it's less than, less than a 10-vote margin between the Ds and the Rs. And in the Senate, as you said, it's, it's, it's 50-50. Um, there are processes there's a process in place in Congress called budget reconciliation, which happens once a year. And it is a process that only requires a majority vote in the Senate to pass a bill. Typically in the Senate, you need 60 votes total to bring a bill to the floor of the United States Senate and bypass the filibuster. Um, and I, it gets very confusing and I won't go too much deeper than that, but absent this once a year budgetary special budgetary authority, which has been used, it was used to pass the 2017 tax cuts. It was used with Obamacare. It was attempt to be used to repeal Obamacare. Um, you know, so it's a powerful tool, but it's a once per fiscal year tool. Um, absent that, things still require a, 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 a 60 vote margin in the Senate. So they involve both parties, even on things that get passed by reconciliation. What I've been saying is you essentially have to get Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who's the most conservative Democrat in the Senate to agree on a piece of it and, and is from a state that Trump won twice by over 30 points to agree with, AOC and the squad on um, on something. That's essentially what has to happen in order for the Democrats, even without Republicans, to pass a bill. And that's that's a tall order. But I I do think that um, the Democrats want to take advantage of their power. Typically, in a midterm election, the the sitting president's party loses. 27, the, an average of 27 House seats. So the operating wisdom is that the House will flip. Kind of everybody's, I shouldn't say everybody, many people think the House will flip in 22. So it's imperative if you're the Democrats that they bring the party together and get some things done here at the outset through this reconciliation process. And I do think on some of the big picture stuff, particularly as it relates to COVID, that that's what's going to happen. And as they're trying to push to, you know, push through this bold agenda in the first weeks and months of the Biden administration, we are obviously dealing with the former president who has become the first in history to be impeached twice now. What can we expect as President Biden has specifically said, I want to work with Republicans and we've got a lot on our plate that we want to get done the first hundred days. What can we expect, do you think, from the upcoming Senate impeachment trial? And I know we can talk for hours on that, but just yeah. again, from a 30,000-foot uh, standpoint, where, where do you see that going? It, I think, Mike, it depends somewhat on what else comes out before the trial starts, what, what the facts are. You know, the conventional wisdom there is that the Republicans, by and large, will not vote to convict the president, the, the former president. And that's probably right and probably what happens. But if there were to be some horrible evidence that comes out between another now and then about his another bombshell or something. Yeah, his complicity, then I think that that could change. But this is largely, I mean, I think it's very important given what happened, but it's also at the end of the day, probably up, you know, unfortunately more of a political exercise. Um, and that's how I see it. 
But I, I do think, Mike, there's one on what you said, there's something really important, which is um, I don't think to me, bipartisanship and unity are, they're not necessarily the same thing. And, you know, look, the, we have the system is set up the way that it's set up. And, and like I said, the majority, the majorities are razor thin. So these parties are going to have to work together. That doesn't mean everything's going to be done. You, you can't spell bipartisan without partisan and stuff is going to get done on a partisan basis because, because that's how the system works. But I don't think that that's mutually exclusive with unity. I think unity is more about what you were asking about earlier. It's about tone. It's about um, tone at the top. It's about respecting each other despite our disagreements. It's, and I think Biden will consistently, he said something to that effect last week, and I think he'll consistently push that, push that message that it's, you know, his talking point has been, it's not red American, blue America, it's we're the United States of America. We'll, we'll, we will hear that ad nauseum for the next four years and good because I, I think we need to hear it. And, and I think there's a difference. I think he wants to try to bring people together um, and unite the country, which is about more about mutual respect than it is about agreeing on everything. So I mean, Mike, can... what CEO of one of our clients, when they ask their senior execs for their input on something, expect, expects or even wants everybody to all say the same thing? Like, that's not how you make good decisions. That's true. And there's a reason the system survives and works. And, and I, I mean, I mean, obviously I'm getting very 30,000 30, footage and, and kind of preachy, but okay. I, I think that it, I think that that's the level at which we're talking about things. So where can uh, businesses, employers expect uh, the relief package to come out? We obviously are between at the moment, 1.9 or so trillion and, I guess, 600 billion um, on the other side. Wh where can businesses, do you think, expect uh, us to come out in the relief package at the end of the day? Go big or go home. Um, Biden makes um, makes it abundantly clear in, in his speeches and interviews that he felt like in 2009 when Obama came in and took over, like they – they didn't do enough. Like the package wasn't big enough. The American recovery and reinvestment act, it, it wasn't big enough. And it, the economy kind of puttered along for a while. And I think his view is go big or go home. Um, it's better to be, um, do slightly more than you need to do, do more than you need to do and be wrong on that side than do less than you need to do and be wrong on that side. And I think that's his guiding philosophy here. And that's why, look, they, notwithstanding the discussion about bipartisanship, I think they will do through reconciliation, a, pa a big package, um, uh, you know, along the order of what he proposed the 1.9 trillion. And, and I think that's what's going to happen. Do you see um, a real push to, either extend the FFCRA um, from a COVID-19 specific situation or, uh, you know, paid federal family leave more generally? You think yeah, businesses I mean, can expect that? I do. I think that, look, this is going to be a very employee friendly, it's a very employee friendly Washington. It's not um, beyond, you know, the, the, um, what they can do through COVID legislation. It's you're not going to get anything particularly extreme through the Senate, as long as the filibuster remains in place. So I think they're going to look to do things through COVID that um, they're not going to be able to do otherwise. And, and it's that simple. There's also the, proposal in there on the federal minimum wage and, and what Biden put out. I, I think it's going to be hard to get there. Um, and I, I think it's hard to, 
tell business, hey, we want you to come back, but by the way, we're going to put all these costs on you at the same time. It's also, there are lots of procedural questions around the, the minimum wage and the, the tipped minimum wage proposals. Um, but but at, at a minimum, that's kind of a, that is kind of a nod to the progressives. Hey, I've got your interest on my agenda. I don't know that that happens at the end of the day. But, but I do think some of the employee-friendly stuff does make it over the finish line, yes. It's going to be interesting because so many of those issues, and I'm going to talk in a moment, I'm going to ask you about the state impact, the state government impact uh, in, in just a minute. But it's interesting because things like minimum wage, you know, very much are geographic sensitive. Um, what, what is an appropriate minimum wage in New York and the tri-state area may right. not be as appropriate in, in the Dakotas or, you know, somewhere else in middle America. So on the one hand, it's nice to talk about national standards for a lot of these issues, but it does become difficult when you're talking about something that will apply perhaps uniformly around the country. Right. And that's the beauty of our system of government is, you know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema from Arizona and other folks, they get a say. And, um, and it, it's not just New York city and Los Angeles. It's lots of other areas as well on both sides of the aisle. Many people do simply tie uh, president Biden to uh, former president Obama, since obviously Biden was the former vice president uh, in the Obama administration. Uh, do you think businesses, employers can expect to see any real material differences between President Obama's initiatives and what we can now expect from President Biden? From a, from a labor and employment perspective, I think it will be largely consistent. Um, but the Democratic Party has shifted to the left in the last four years. There's no question that the center of gravity in the Democratic Party is left of where it was under Obama and in part mobilized by Trump. And so if anything, I think Biden from an executive perspective has the potential to be even more, more aggressive than Obama was. And, and Biden, you know, he, he calls himself a union guy. I think he announced his launch, um, at the union hall and um, the Richard Trumka from the AFL CIO said that labor delivered the election to Biden. So, and you know, Marty Walsh, his nominee to be secretary of labor was a union guy was literally a union guy. He was president of a local union in Boston. And, and so I think we, we should expect a very labor-friendly administration. And we saw what President Biden did literally within hours of uh, raising his right hand with the NLRB. Right, right, exactly. So it's, uh, you know, they're, they're serious about this. And with that said, these things do take time. I mean, we talk about the, the stack of executive orders that we saw on the desk. Um, we saw uh, the firing of the general counsel, the NLRB, and, and we're starting to hear and see a lot more about his initiatives. But these things do take time, whether it's uh, executive action, whether it's uh, administrative agency shifts. How quickly do you think businesses can start to see his initiatives starting to have results? I, I think it'll... It'll again, I hate to say this, but it depends. You gotta go below the surface. And if it's something that has to go through the regulatory process, that can be months or even years. If it's something impacted by directly by an executive order, and, and the executive orders tend to be kind of more, you know, higher level general. Um, I think you know, you and I um, talked about one of them last week on um, equity. Um, I, I, they tend to be higher level, 
Um, but I look, I, I think, I think it depends, but he's, he's He's clearly going to try to walk. He's going to try to walk and chew gum at the same time, but COVID is a total eclipse of the sun for these guys. And it is, it's not priority one, it's priority one through a hundred and everything else is, is secondary. I, I think, I think they'll try to walk and chew gum in the sense that personnel is policy and the, whether it's a Marty Walsh at labor or a Rohit Chopra at the consumer financial protection bureau or a Gary Gensler at the sec or um, whoever it is, it, it progress. He's going to put some progressive nominees in place and progressive appointees in place and that's how he'll try to kind of push a progressive agenda forward while most of the administration's horsepower is really focused on COVID. And that's why if you're an employer or you're a, and you're a business owner in whatever context you need to, you, you got to pay attention to everything else because there is other stuff that's going to be happening while while the major horsepower and the headlines are focused on COVID. And let's stay with COVID for a second and, and vaccines. I've been talking about vaccines a lot uh, the last few weeks. A lot of labor and employment folks have been talking about, can you have mandatory policies? Should you have mandatory policies? But the issue of vaccines, as we know, is a political issue also. And I know you've been spending a lot of time speaking about vaccines and we've been seeing the frustration around the country with the, the rollout uh, and the, the, the plan or lack of plan. Where, where, what have you been talking about uh, when it comes to vaccines? So two, two things. Um, one is um, at the state level initially, there was a lot of ambiguity around prioritization of relative groups of people. And that's still out there. And the state mechanisms for distributing, getting the jabs into people's arms was really out of whack and kind of poorly thought out by and large across the country. That's normalizing. And states have started to move away from complex formulas to trying to simplify, you know, everybody over 65 gets it first, as opposed to, you know, various categories of workers and, and that sort of thing. And I, I had a call last week with the governor of Maryland who was talking about Larry Hogan, who was talking about how, look, they're really set up now. And it's, it's not perfect, but it's like, they know how to get the vaccine into people's arms what they need is they need money from the federal government and they need the federal government to do anything the federal government can do to speed up the availability of, of vaccines. And we're all hearing about this on the news that there's a coming shortage. Um, there's a production shortage. And by the way, there are limited tools in the toolbox with respect to what the federal government can do. This is, it's principally a manufacturing capacity issue. And there are, they're talking about, they are going to use the Defense Production Act to kind of commandeer supplies that are relevant to administration of the vaccine. There's this talk about a certain type of syringe. Um, you get six doses out of the Pfizer vial as opposed to whatever it is. Amazing. Yeah. Um, they're going to try to flex the federal government's muscle to bring some of that to the fore. But unfortunately, this is a supply and demand issue. And we just have to wait for the supply to catch up with, with the demand. And that's really a matter of how quickly these companies can produce the vaccine. Well, is that what it is? I mean, is it, is it a supply and demand in the sense that we are literally waiting for the companies to produce more vaccine or has this been uh, a political, you know, a political issue in the sense that we've got the supply, but it's not being released to the States as quickly as we thought it would, or we need to, or is it somewhere in between? There's been some of that in the early days, definitely. And, 
but I think over the next couple of weeks, what I expect is to see that flip from kind of the questions about administration, questions about, you know, withholding stockpiles to flat out there isn't enough manufacturing capacity. I think Pfizer and Moderna can each manufacture 12 to 18 million doses per week. And I can't remember what the number is in terms of the number of people who have been vaccinated thus far, but it's, it's not super high, 6% of the population or something like that. So we have a long way to go. The J&J vaccine, I think the jury's out in terms of whether that's the equal of the others. It's, it's unclear. I don't think the scientific community really knows. I think that's a key variable. But I think over the next couple of weeks, the headlines are going to be that there just isn't enough out there. So the uh, discussion about the synergies between the federal and state governments is a great segue for the last sort of segment that I wanted to ask you about. You and I have talked quite a bit on this podcast about the need to look beyond just the federal government, especially when it comes to labor and employment issues uh, and, and how we really need to also focus on state and local activities. That's been a big thing that you've talked a lot about. Obviously, the January Georgia runoff elections got heavy press. But what takeaways do you think, Howard, there are from the aggressiveness that we continue to see with what state and local municipalities are doing on employment type issues? I, th- I think focus. I think every company should be thinking not just in, in Washington terms, but in very much in, in state and local terms. And uh, post-election, there continues to be only one state legislature in the entire country that's divided. One house is ours and one house is these, and that's Minnesota. So, you know, if, if, you're, if it's a Democratic state legislature um, with a Democratic governor, you have to be focused on that. If it is, and, and then at the local level in the, in the larger cities, we're going to continue to see the kind of hyper-progressive activity that we've seen in, in New York and Los Angeles and Seattle and San Francisco and Chicago and so on and so forth. And if you're doing business in one of those places, you got to make your voice heard and you've got to pay a lot of attention to to what's going on. As you know, you're in New York. There's a big mayor's race in, in New York this year. And it's essentially, the well, not essentially, the winner of the Democratic Party. The Democratic primary will, will become the next mayor. And who's it going to be? You know, de Blasio uh, has his detractors. He's been hyper-progressive. Are we going to get somebody who understands the business side of the equation. If not, you know, New York's in a lot of trouble. And, and, and so I think, you know, people have to make their voices heard and they have to be engaged at the local level. The, the feds grab a lot of the headlines, but local is often where the rubber hits the road. Well, it's a great point. And it does matter because we saw that even with the last four years uh, of essentially a Republican federal government, uh, and certainly in the White House, you have in New York, Democratic governor uh, with legislature. And then in New York City, you've had Mayor de Blasio and a very aggressive New York City council, uh, where you where you were seeing a lot of initiatives, whether it's just cause requirements for terminations, uh, whether it's minimum wage and, and right. other attacks on industries like the fast food industry, it does matter what's happening on the state and local levels. Even things like joint employer and exactly. stuff like that, that exactly. they tried, kind of tried to legislate through the city council. And look, that stuff is going to have an impact on business in New York city. And it's going to have an impact thereby impacting tax revenue. And until that comes home to roost and and that begins to have an effect and turns the tide it, it can be very rough so we'll see i think the whole country i think needs to kind of watch what happens in new york this year because i think it'll tell us a lot about um kind of where things are on a on a, on a local level 
um, as, as you know, we've dealt with COVID and, and things have evolved in the country. So I would not put you on the spot and, and ask you if a year from now, if we're going to be done wearing masks and, and all past uh, this COVID-19 issue, I wouldn't do that to you. But when I do have you back on February 1st, 2022, for my fifth anniversary special of the <laughs> podcast what do you think we're going to be talking about what are, what are the, the big hot issues that we're going to be talking about or still be talking about then that is a great question i that think first, was that the first great question i've asked you today yeah they, these are all great mike as always uh climate for one thing i think i think look we're going to be doing the post-mortem on covid for the next decade how do we prevent the next pandemic? As soon as we're out of this one, I think that'll grab a fair share of, of attention. Um, but I think this, this administration is very focused secondarily on climate change. And I think we'll be talking a lot about climate. You know, I, God willing, Mike, I'll be back with you in a year and God willing, we won't be wearing masks and, working from our respective homes anymore. Well, actually that part is okay. Um, <laughs> but uh, we're still going to be dealing with this as an economic matter. And I, I think equity is something that we're going to continue to be talking about. That's kind of the early buzzword from the Biden administration. There, there's a lot of inequity in this country. And frankly, I'm both like people who, regardless of how you voted, like there is too much of a haves versus have nots kind of thing going on. And I think we have to deal with that. And I think COVID is only going to exacerbate that from an economic point of view. And so this, it's not, it took us 10 years to, to kind of work through the fallout from the financial crisis in, in 2008, I think it's going to take us a while to work through the economic fallout of COVID and we're going to be dealing with it. And part of what this administration is going to have to reckon with is how that exacerbates these pre-existing inequities in society that I think are the key to moving the country forward. So I think climate equity and economic fallout from COVID is what I would say. And we saw one of the executive orders that uh, President Biden just signed dealt specifically with the uh, former President Trump uh, diversity and bias training uh, executive order. And, and the term, one of the terms used in President Biden's executive order was racial equity uh, and how companies should be dealing with that and, and what we might expect going forward on that. So, I mean, that, that, that certainly looks to be a big pillar of his administration for move, uh, moving forward purposes. Yeah, I think it is because whether it's, you know, this past summer and Black Lives Matter, um, you know, is obviously at the at the center of that as, as it should be, or, um, you know, it's it's offshoring and globalization and the impact that that's had on on people from a socioeconomic point of view. Um, we have to deal with the fact that, and, and this is foremost in, in his mind, we have to deal with the fact that um, society isn't treating everybody the same way. And um, there's a disparity and a, this, you know, this, this wealth gap that's real. And, you know, Biden isn't a guy who's going to like tear up the capitalism playbook and he's a capitalist and um but but we got to deal with some of that if we're going to put the um put humpty dumpty back together here and i think that's at the that's at the top of their list when we get through COVID is doing things through that lens and through the lens of making sure we leave the planet in a good place for the next generation and i think like I love him or hate him, vote for him or against him in November, you know, this past November. Like Biden is a he's been around a long time. He's he's an adult. He understands how the sausage gets made. And he's he's kind of a blue collar 
guy. He's not, you know, he doesn't come from wealth. And he, I think he genuinely is a good man for, for the moment. And, you know, hopefully the country will regain its footing and look, we can come roaring back from this, but it, it but not, but it's not going to happen by itself. And I think he views his mission as, as leading the charge back. Well, Howard Schweitzer, a partner of mine here at Cozen O'Connor and the CEO of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies. Uh, if anybody is interested in hearing additional podcasts, and that's not to suggest that they should stop listening to my Employment Law Now podcast, <laughs> but uh, you are also involved in your own regular podcast series. Uh, where do people find that if they want to listen? Mike, it's the Beltway Briefing. It's on all the usual networks, I guess you call it. Pod, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, et cetera. So the Beltway Briefing, we do it every week. And we try to break down from a bipartisan perspective what's happening in Washington and beyond and how to make sense of it. Well, Howard, uh, as always, uh, I love that you join me on uh, each of these anniversary specials. This is the fourth one. Uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate. I know how busy you are uh, and, and all of the episodes that you join us for in between as well. Uh, your insight is terrific and appreciated. So thank you so much. And I look forward to uh, another robust discussion for our fifth anniversary special next year. Mike, happy anniversary. Thank you for having me as always. It's great to be able to work as partners and friends and uh, happy anniversary, Mike, and many, many more. <laughs> Thank you, Howard. Howard is always so great at what he does and so great at talking about uh, these kinds of issues in a way that all of us, myself included, uh, can really understand it. Uh, so thank you so much to Howard Schweitzer. And again, thank you to all of you for continuing to listen to the podcast. And I look forward to another year of bringing you trends, developments, and the latest hot issues in labor and employment law. Until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive. <laughs>